Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 48, Catherine Bonventry, The Impact of Melinda's Diaz v. Massachusetts. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Catherine Bonventry. Catherine is Assistant Professor of Justice and Policy Studies at Guilford College in Greensboro, North Carolina. Catherine's research focuses on wrongful convictions, crime laboratories, and judicial decision-making. Our podcast today focuses on Catherine's PhD dissertation, which is entitled The Implementation of Judicial Policy by Crime Laboratories, an Examination of the Impact of Melendez-Diaz v. Massachusetts. To some, Melendez-Diaz was a surprising and distressing decision in the Supreme Court's Confrontation Clause jurisprudence. In Melendez-Diaz, the Supreme Court essentially prohibited the use of affidavits for presenting forensic results in criminal cases. This meant that lab results on things like DNA, blood alcohol content, and drugs required live witness testimony, and lab printouts were no longer enough. At the time, many critics worried that Melendez-Diaz would result in chaos in the criminal justice system. Laboratory technicians, who are already overburdened, would have to spend their days in court rather than testing samples and the system would grind to a halt. Did this forensic apocalypse occur? Catherine's study tries to find out. Catherine, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Ed. To set the stage for our discussion, let me ask you to go back to when Melendez-Diaz was decided. What were the concerns, or actually the parade of horribles, that the dissent and other critical commentators leveled against the decision when it was decided? Yes, there were concerns that, in the words of Justice Scalia, that the sky would fall, essentially, that requiring forensic analysts to testify in court in lieu of submitting affidavits or certificates of analysis would mean that they'd be all spending their time testifying and nobody would be in the laboratory getting work done. And so it was essentially this notion that labs are already backlogged and this would just contribute to that. Just out of curiosity, what got you interested in this topic to start? Did you suspect that some of these criticisms were wrong, that the forensic analyst would be able to handle it? What was your initial intuition about this topic? Well, I didn't really have a suspicion about how it would play out on the ground, but I'm always interested in these cases where if there's a question that's empirical, such as this is going to shut laboratories down, then there's an answer to that out there by collecting data. And I was more broadly interested in what forensic science do in terms of their contributions to wrongful convictions. And so the decision for me was, I thought, well, this is really great that now defense attorneys can have more opportunities to cross-examine the analysts about what they did in the laboratory. But I mean, it could have potentially been a problem on the ground. So that's what got me interested in exploring that. So tell us how you went about studying this question about the empirical impact of Melinda's Diaz. 
what I did was I reached out to a professional association of forensic laboratory administrators, and I asked if they'd be willing to do a survey about that. And I was happily surprised that they agreed to do it, or at least to distribute the survey to their membership. But then I also wanted to explore more in depth through interviews with administrators what their perceptions of the decision were. So I wanted to look at the practical impact of the case, but more broadly, just how crime laboratory folks learn about legal decisions and that sort of thing. Just to be clear, it was a survey that was distributed via the web, right? Yes. And then what did these interviews consist of when you were doing follow-up interviews? What I did was I reached out all over the country. I was trying to get folks who represented different types of laboratories. So I wanted to get folks from law enforcement laboratories at the state level and the local level and folks who worked in independent crime laboratories. And so basically I just sent letters all over and got some responses and I was able to conduct 18 in-depth interviews over the telephone with laboratory administrators from 15 different laboratories. And with the web-based survey, what kind of response rate did you get when it was distributed? So I had about 138 folks respond from about 500 plus. So I got about a 23 or 24% response rate. Do you have any concerns here about selection effects? So obviously, 23-24% sounds great, but I might be a little concerned that in any kind of satisfaction-based survey that you might get extremes, so you might only get people who either really hate the decision or think it's a big nothing. You don't tend to get the middle group. That's absolutely the case if that's the risk, right? So I don't have what I would consider a representative sample of all crime laboratories across the country in terms of the survey or the interviews, actually. I didn't get too many angry folks, either in the survey or the interviews. You know, that was one of my thoughts. Oh, the folks who are really mad about this decision would be the folks who'd be really willing to participate so they could vent about it. But it didn't seem to be the case that I got lots of folks who were really upset by it. It was mostly overall just folks who thought it really wasn't that big a deal. But then again, can never say for sure. And in the interviews that you conducted, the follow-up interviews, there you were aiming for a distribution in terms of the kind of crime lab that's involved. And you got the names or the selection here from the web-based survey. Actually, what I did in terms of finding the folks to do the interviews, there's a, the Bureau of Justice Statistics periodically publishes a census of publicly funded crime laboratories in the states, and you can download their actual data it's from the University of Michigan. And so I downloaded the data set and the information for all the participants in that survey is in the data set. From that data set, I was able to code for the type of jurisdiction that was served and then sampling for diversity and not probability sampling. And so I was able to get the contact information of laboratory administrators, and I just reached out to them directly and chose based on the type of laboratory. Let's talk about the results of the survey. So obviously, your dissertation is way more comprehensive than I think we could ever cover in detail on the podcast. But can you give us a few highlights about the results from your study? What were the big takeaways? 
Sure. So I think one of the big takeaways was, again, I keep borrowing this phrase, but that the sky didn't seem to fall, at least with respect to the folks who participated in the survey and the interviews. Although I should note that there were two of my interview participants who really found that there was a big impact as a result of the decision. And I think it was based for two reasons. For those two laboratories, the size of the jurisdiction that they served and the type of cases that they were testing, right? So for these two laboratories who had a statewide jurisdiction and who had to send their analysts all over the state to provide testimony, and we're also doing drug testing, which is a fairly high volume, right? So if you look at the requests for forensic services across all the different forensic disciplines, drug testing, right, controlled substances is one of the higher requests. So that they felt that the impact was really strong. And for one of the participants, that person felt like that the court didn't really understand how a drug laboratory works and that to call somebody who works in a drug lab that's processing thousands of samples an accusatory witness made no sense because these people, as far as that person was concerned, had no connection to the case. He referred to cases as simply a barcode. It made no sense for them. But overall, I think that the big takeaway was that there wasn't a big impact I was happy that I did the survey and the interviews five years out from the decision because what I did find through the survey and talking to folks is that right after the decision actually requests to have analysts testify had gone up. So the respondents reported that there was a, an initial impact where requests and subpoenas had gone up, but then after a while, things just sort of settled back into their normal routines. And the other thing I think was an important takeaway was that a lot of these laboratories were just sending their analysts to testify anyway. I want to poke on that last point. There are these jurisdictions where it was a big deal. A lot of it has to do with geography. And I think a lot of it may also have to do with the volume that they were dealing with in a very large geographical area. But for the most part, I thought the really interesting finding was that for most crime labs, Melinda's Diaz was not that big of a deal. And one of the reasons that you suggest was that, well, a lot of them were sending the analysts anyway, and they weren't using these certificates. Were there other reasons that you were able to ferret out for why the impact of Melinda's Diaz was just not nearly as dramatic as many people thought it would be? Well, I think one thing that came up that the respondents raised, which if you think about it, makes sense that, you know, most of these cases in the criminal justice system are resolved through guilty pleas. And so obviously no testimony would be required. So I think that that was an important factor in it. Even at a preliminary stage, there was some discussion, I remember at the time, about a kind of speeding ticket game that would be played well, you, you want to go see whether the cop shows up, and if the cop doesn't show up, then you get off, but these are much more serious crimes. I guess that wasn't something that ended up being a significant problem. For some laboratories, they did notice initially that a couple of the respondents mentioned initially that there would be defense subpoenas for everybody in the laboratory who had connection to the evidence, and then if people showed up, a guilty plea was entered. They talked about some of the defense tactics, but for the most part, folks were testifying to begin with, and that was that. 
What about the effect of notice and demand statutes, which became far more popular or at least far more in the public eye afterward? What was the effect of those? There was only one participant that actually mentioned that. And so this was one of the states where I conducted the interviews. And in that state, the legal counsel for the laboratory was going around and actually instructing people on how to use notice and demand statutes because apparently they weren't being used. But with the impact of Melendez-Diaz in that jurisdiction, the legal counsel decided that maybe it would be a good idea to go and let folks know about this so that they could use them more frequently. Beyond that, it wasn't really discussed that much. The other factor I thought was interesting, too, was you also talk a little bit about scheduling arrangements with courts. Courts recognizing this problem basically adjusted to the new doctrine so that they made it more convenient for the forensic analysts to come in and testify. Sure, sure, right. So in some places, they would schedule certain days to hear certain cases involving certain types of forensic evidence so that the analysts could be there to handle all the cases in one day. There is discussion of having judges take analysts out of turn, right? So if they showed up at the court and they were scheduled to testify later, just take them out of turn so that they could do their testimony and then get back into the laboratory. So it seemed like, yeah, there was some accommodation on the part of prosecutors and courts. Let me ask a broader question here about the policy implications of your findings. For example, it seems that in the case of Melendez-Diaz, the Supreme Court makes a pretty substantial legal change that hopefully improved defendant rights. And the Supreme Court was actually able to do it without creating a lot of chaos in practice, despite concerns about that at the outset. Mm -hmm. Are there any broader principles that we might be able to draw from this experience to minimize the costs that courts or the legal system in general might normally face when trying to make a legal change? I think just understanding that whoever's responsible for implementing could go a couple different ways. I think what was interesting here is that these are agencies who are connected to the legal system and being a part of that and understanding how things work and sort of readily having resources to help them implement versus other agencies who are not connected to the legal system and, and sort of have to figure it out. I guess it also just depends on what the reaction is, but I think broadly it's just understanding that court comes down with a decision doesn't mean that it's going to be implemented in the way that the court had anticipated. Well, it's kind of interesting in this case, right? Because it seems like the thing that the courts wanted to have happen actually did happen. You actually do have the analysts coming to court. The thing that's a little different is that the dissent's concern didn't materialize because the lower courts were able to adjust and the crime laboratories were able to adjust in ways that were not necessarily expected at the outset, which I think is certainly is an interesting outcome. Normally, you think about legal change and then the institution doesn't want it. It basically doesn't implement it or it passes things like notice and demand statutes, which mm -hmm. effectively start to get rid of the in-court testimony of the analysts. And that's not really what happened here. Yeah. So sometimes things go not the way the naysayers think. 
I think it was a good decision. I think also just to step back for a second, I think what was important, what sort of resonated with me with this case is the court acknowledging the risk of wrongful convictions with forensic science evidence and some of the troubling history with that. And I thought that was pretty interesting to acknowledge that. One other thing I wanted to talk to you about was you mentioned in the dissertation that Melinda's Diaz prompted a move toward greater use of video conferencing. Can you tell us a bit about that and your take on whether technology might be a way of effectively having our cake and eating it too, getting more defendant rights at minimal cost to the system? That's one of the interesting things that came out that I'm actually would love to explore empirically in the future, right? The extent to which actually states are trying to use that. I mean, you can think of all the different ways that this could be helpful or not. Just imagine this scenario. If a forensic analyst testifies from the laboratory, the equipment in the background, and perhaps a lab coat on, right, that what impact might that have on the fact finder to see this person in such a scientific setting, right? Creating this sort of aura of scientific infallibility. It would have to be allowing the defendant an opportunity to cross, but in a way that's fair. So green screen or some kind of neutral background, and then you have the forensic analyst testify, and then you do it remotely, and this would solve some of those geographical problems presuming that the video conferencing was found acceptable, right. this would remove some of these geographical problems that you were talking about with some of your outlier interviewees that were expressing considerable concern over the effect of Melinda's Diaz. Sure, sure. I also wondered too, and this I'm just speculating here, what the impact would be. So the notion of confronting your accusers face-to-face if the analyst was a dishonest person, went that step away from the actual in-person, if that might have an impact. Right. And that brings up some of the case law about one-way video conferencing right, or the witness being behind a screen and all of those kinds of cases. But this two-way conferencing, I think, is an interesting problem, and maybe there'll be some movement there. Yeah. Final question for you. So what's next for you? First of all, is there work that remains to be done in this area on Melinda's Diaz, either by you or by others? And what are the other issues that you want to explore? And I know that in our previous conversation, you talked about how most of your work is on wrongful convictions. What are the issues that you're looking at in that arena? So right now, I'm working on a study applying a framework uh, that's actually sort of growing in in business ethics, and it's called behavioral ethics. And I'm looking at cases in which forensic analysts have been engaged in misconduct and applying this framework, which takes ethics from, instead of looking at it from a normative perspective, what people actually do when they're faced with ethical dilemmas, whether or not they even recognize them, and what sort of cognitive constraints make people engage in unethical behavior, sometimes without even knowing it. So I'm working with a colleague, Robert Norris at George Mason. We're sort of coding now these cases in which there have been, for example, an investigation and a report's been released. And just to see if any of those factors that are common in this behavioral ethics literature appear in these cases. So that's one of the things I'm working on. And then another thing that I'm getting at slowly is just seeing how state courts have dealt with Belendez-Diaz under their own constitutions, right? Dealt with those issues and that case. 
Well, Catherine, thanks for taking the time to talk about your work on the impact of Melinda's Diaz. It's great having you on the show. Thanks. It was great to be here. For me, Catherine's dissertation is noteworthy in two primary ways. The first is its approach, which I think represents an important trend in law-related scholarship. Legal commentators love speculating about the likely effect that a change in law will have in practice. Traditionally, though, things were left basically at that, speculation. It could be 50 years from now, and we'd still debate what Melendez-Diaz did and whether it was a good idea. Catherine's study, though, takes a hard-nosed empirical approach. Collect the data and find out what happened. The second thing to note is Catherine's findings, which I found quite surprising. Did we actually expect Melendez-Diaz to have a massive, catastrophic effect on the criminal justice system? Probably not. The actors surely would find a way to cope with it. But Catherine didn't just find the absence of a massive effect. She found the absence of an effect at all, at least in most jurisdictions. Melendez-Diaz was a speed bump for most of the forensic community. Trials are rare. Some labs already were providing live testimony, and even the ones that weren't seemed to work things out logistically, either by working with court schedules, switching to video conferences, or relying on notice and demand statutes. Perhaps Melinda's Diaz was a watershed moment for legal commentators, but for forensic labs, it was a blip, just another requirement added to a long list that already existed. In any event, Catherine's study will definitely change the way that I teach Melinda's Diaz in class. For those of you teaching evidence this semester, I bet it will be useful information as well. That does it for this episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producers are Alex Nunn and Margot Wilkinson-Smith, and the production editor is Carson Smith, assisted by Riley Beal. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Parr-Carranza, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle-Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.